are in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for your mercy, and we're thankful that we are ransomed, we've been restored, we've been forgiven. Lord, we're able to stand before you as the guilty party as a result of what you have done on the cross and in your resurrection. And you have taken our sin upon yourself and you have bore it on the cross. And you came out of that grave in victory, giving us victory with you. And now you sit at the Father's right hand in eternal glory awaiting the day that you return and reconcile all things to yourself. Lord, we're thankful for this text even upon reading it. And Lord, as we look together at it now, we pray that you'll keep me from saying anything inaccurate and that you will be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. How do you define the word supremacy? Our minds are very limited. And so to think of something as actually and truly supreme is a very difficult thing for us to do. And although we live in a world that has its problems, it is a mess, we still function and live with certain boxes in our minds. We have certain borders within our minds, ideas and thoughts that fit into those various boxes. And that's how we understand and think through things within our minds. And so to think of the word supremacy is difficult because we have nothing here on earth that is genuinely supreme. I suppose you can consider the Supreme Court, right? Even the the recent nomination uh, that, that has been given, it's the highest court of the land, and so it's very important as we consider who is being added to the Supreme Court. The word supremacy is also developing or has at times a negative connotation when you consider it in light of white supremacy and the evils of racism that accompany white supremacy, believing that white people are supreme over people of color. You think of supreme kings, or you think of tribal leaders. But even then, those men, those people are not genuinely supreme over all because they are simply at the top of their nation or their tribe. They aren't supreme over the world or anything else. And the Supreme Court, well, it's not supreme over Canada. It's not supreme over Mexico. It's just supreme over the United States and our system. So really, it is not supreme at all in terms of the entire world, let alone the universe. And so anything that we come up with that is supreme really isn't other than what we're going to be looking at this morning. And that is the supremacy of Christ. The only supreme being is God, specifically from this morning's text, Jesus Christ. And that's the whole big idea, just to be up front at the beginning. That is the whole big idea of our sermon this morning. It is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It is the fact that Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is central. Jesus is over everything. And we're going to see this by two major headings. First, Christ is supreme in creation. Second, Christ is supreme in redemption. 
The passage before us this morning, it might even look like it in your Bibles, but it might be set in or indented a little bit within the pages of your Bibles. And that's because it is a poem of sorts. Likely, it could have even been a hymn, a hymn of the early church that they would have sung. But this hymn of Christ that Paul writes for us here comes on the heels of what we finished with last week. And of course, with everything, especially in studying through a book of the Bible, like we're doing with the book of Colossians, you never want to neglect the context of the passage. And so what we looked at last week has import to what we look at this week. So what did we look at last week in those verses in 18 and 19, or excuse me, 13 and 14? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. So this is important to how we even view the hymn that Paul gives for us here. That we read this hymn and we look at it and study it in light of the fact that we have been transferred, we have been delivered, we have been moved out of Satan's kingdom of darkness, we've been brought over to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. As one commentator said, our rescue from the dominion of darkness is certain and lasting because God accomplished it through none other than the one who is Lord of the universe. And so what is the basis of your redemption? On what basis are you secure as a member of the kingdom of light? You're foundationally secure in your redemption and deliverance because none other than Jesus Christ himself, the preeminent supreme one, the one who is Lord over all, he is the one that has removed you out of Satan's kingdom and brought you into the kingdom of light. Therefore, you cannot be removed out of it. The Lord has done all of the work For us. But first look with me at verse 15 again. Where we begin to see. That Christ is supreme in creation. He is the image. Of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. He is the image. Of the invisible God. God. Is invisible. No man can see God. Remember that God told Moses back. Uh, when Moses was there in the desert, he said, No man can see my face and live. First Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. John 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. And so the point stands that God is invisible. However, Jesus is manifested in the flesh. He is shown in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. The word there for image is icon. Icon, right? You think of an icon. What is an icon? It's the image of something else, correct? So Jesus is the icon. He is the image of the invisible God. You and I have been made in the image of God, right? You go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis and... God says, let us make male and female in our image. But we do not accurately reflect God as image bearers all the time, do we? We don't. We, we, have, we have broken it. We have, because of our sin, we have transgressed and we have, covenant, we have corrupted the fact that we are image bearers of God. We do not accurately reflect God as image bearers because of our sin. However, Christ within his life was, and even now, of course, is without any sin. He's never transgressed. Yet here, he is stated as being in the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 is going to be helpful to us a couple times this morning. But it begins, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint 
of his nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. I like what one study Bible said in regard to this. The Son is identical in substance to God. The Son being Jesus. Being himself fully God. In all attributes and abilities, the Son is exactly like the Father. In his attributes and his abilities, he is exactly like the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. But notice the next part of the verse 15. He, Jesus, of course, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. If you take these words, the firstborn of all creation, and you pull it out of Colossians, out of the context, and you interpret them just based on those few words, the firstborn of all creation, what would that mean? It would mean that he was born, does it not? Would that not mean that Jesus was then born? He's the firstborn. See, Paul very clearly says he is the firstborn of creation. And if you take the words from its context, that's exactly what you would think. But understood within the context of the passage, it cannot mean that Jesus was created or the firstborn. It cannot mean that somehow God the Father was intimate with some other being and then Jesus was the cosmic child of some sort of cosmic intimacy between God and some other being. It cannot mean that. And let me tell you two reasons from this text. First, because of the word firstborn. The word firstborn here is prototokos. And what Paul has in mind here is not firstborn in the sense of being created as though Nora is our firstborn child. That is not what he is saying when he is using the word firstborn here. He is not indicating creation. He is indicating position. He's indicating the position that Jesus has within the entire context of this passage. It is totally about the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. It is not a matter of creation of Jesus being created. It is a matter of his position. The position that Jesus holds is the position of firstborn. That as the firstborn in regard to position, he is the ruler over all of creation. Let me try to illustrate it this way. You think about a king and a queen. A king and a queen, they have a firstborn son. Obviously, that son has been created. And that's one way we think about being the firstborn. But in another way, that son has the position of being the firstborn. That he will be sovereign. That the king and queen may have other sons, but the firstborn son has the position. He has the supremacy over the rest of the children of his family upon the death of his father when he becomes king. And this is what Paul is stating here. He's not trying to say that Jesus was created or born. He is saying that Jesus is in the preeminent position. This is the whole point of the passage. The second reason Jesus could not have been created or the firstborn of some cosmic relationship of the Father had is because of the very next verse. Look at verse 16. For by him, again him, that pronoun, going back to Jesus, for by him... All things were created. And so Jesus could not have been created because it was by him that all things were created. That doesn't make sense, right? For, For Jesus to be created and at the same time saying that he's a creator. Those two things cannot jive. And that's because, again, 
Paul is referencing the position that Jesus has as the preeminent one. He is the Lord. And by him, verse 16, all things were created. It makes far more sense to see that Jesus was not created, but that he is actually the creator. And to let you know, this has been the Christian position for hundreds of years, over 1,500 years. Specifically, all the way back to the Nicene Creed of the 4th century that clearly says what they believe in the 4th century, at the end of the 300s, that Jesus was not made, the Nicene Creed says. But look at verse 16 again. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. When you consider the first verse in the book in, in, in Genesis, in the whole Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Do you see Christ as the one who is doing the creating? Paul does. This is what Paul sees. So by him, right? By him, by Christ, all things were created. Everything in the heavens, everything in the earth, the visible things, the invisible things, all of it was created through Him and for Him. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, The Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Or Hebrews 1, 2, For in the last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. It was through Jesus, it was by Jesus that all that you see has been created. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Paul says, heaven and earth were created by Jesus. Therefore, not only is Jesus God, as stated in Genesis 1 and here, but he also created all that you see. And as the creator, as the one through whom and by whom all things were created... In Jesus is how all things are held together. Verse 17. It's okay for your brain to circuit, okay? Let your mind be blown. Verse 17. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Listen to Doug Moo, a commentator on this point. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without Him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbit. Friends, the universe, as you see it, and as we know it, and as it's studied by scientists, all of it is held together, not because of some cosmic bang billions of years ago, and it all just magically came to be. The entire universe holds together because of a person, because of Jesus. In Him all things hold together. Again, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 is helpful to us. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. How is the universe upheld? It's upheld by the word of the power of Jesus. It's no secret to the Christian why the universe is orderly. It's no secret how it's all connected. It's not 
a secret ultimately. It might be a secret because we don't understand physics very well. At least I don't. But it's not a secret to us why mass is mass. And why time is time. And why space is space. Because in Jesus, all things hold together. And it's by Him, by the word of His power, that it is all held together. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, there is no maverick molecule if God is sovereign. There is no maverick molecule if God is sovereign. There are no maverick or renegade molecules. Every molecule is where Jesus wants it to be. Because Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is overall. And that doesn't just mean big things like you and me or structures or whatever. Down to the very molecules. Jesus is sovereign. The reason the chair that you're sitting on doesn't obliterate into trillions and trillions or whatever molecules is because Jesus is holding your chair together by the word of his power. Jesus is sovereign over your chair that you're sitting on. Why doesn't the sun burn out? Because Jesus is sovereign over the sun and he holds it together. Why doesn't the earth grow too hot or too cold? Because Jesus regulates it. Why can you depend now on the law of gravity? Why are none of you concerned that you're going to float up and bonk your heads on the ceiling this morning? Because Jesus created gravity and perpetuates it. And so you're not concerned about it. You trust in the laws that He has set forth. You trust in in the laws of energy and motion and gravity and all of those things. And those are just the things that we can observe. Forget about the things that we cannot observe. That Jesus, of course, is supreme over all of the things that we can see. But He is supreme over the invisible things. But from the heights of the Himalayas with Mount Everest to the depths of the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean, from all of the animals at the highest points of the earth, to the sea creatures that are in the the pit of the sea, from the microscopic creatures that we cannot see, to the greatest beasts in the world, Jesus Christ reigns supreme over all of it. Over all kings, over all presidents, over all prime ministers, over all Congresses, over the UN, over everything, over the 190 country, 195 countries in the world, Jesus Christ reigns supreme from one end of the Milky Way to the other side of the Milky Way, from one side of the universe to the other side of the universe, from the earth to the moon, from the moon to the sun. They say that the observable universe is 93 billion light years across. And who is supreme over every square inch of 93 billion light years? What do you think I'm going to say? Jesus. Jesus is supreme over all of it. And he's supreme over what cannot be observed. He's supreme over the angels. He's supreme over the heavenly beings. He's supreme over them as his own creation. He's supreme over what we cannot see in heaven and all that is happening there. He is supreme over hell and all that is happening there. He is supreme over what we cannot see. And to wipe out any fear that you may have, Jesus Christ is 
utterly supreme over Satan himself, the worthlessly wicked creature that Satan is, created and a functioning as a pawn, walking around with a fractured skull as a result of what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus is supreme over what Paul says here. Thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And if he's supreme over all of those things, if he's supreme over 93 billion light years of universe that we can even see, then he's supreme over you. He is supreme over you. And friends, this is the Jesus that is worthy of your worship. It is no less than a supreme, almighty, preeminent Jesus that is worthy of your worship. The American church, and maybe the church across the world, but what we can see within the American church, they've fashioned themselves a Jesus that is so weak and so puny. He is kind of like a demigod of sorts, where he shoots out certain powers here and there. He's a reflection or an image of us, rather than a reflection or image of an invisible God. But Jesus, a Jesus that is worthy of your worship, is one that is supreme. One that is Lord over all, as the expression goes. If he is not Lord over all, then he is not Lord at all. C.S. Lewis had a thing about the three L's in regard to Christ. He said that Jesus was either a Lord, he was a liar, or he was a lunatic. And plenty of people wouldn't mind lining up behind thinking he was a liar and a lunatic, but the only confession worthy of Jesus Christ is that he is the supreme Lord over everything. And only those who have confessed him as Savior and Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Understanding him as, a supreme, as supreme gives such a refreshing meaning to life. It gives meaning to personal worship. It gives meaning to corporate congregational worship. Why do we get together 52 times a year, once a week, Sunday morning, in order to worship? Because we worship the supreme God. We worship Jesus who is supreme over everything. Your unsaved friends and family think you're crazy for coming here every week on Sunday morning, wasting a Sunday morning or even wasting a Sunday morning on Memorial Day weekend when today's weather's beautiful and tomorrow's is going to stink. But our motivation in coming here every week is not seeing friends. It's not seeing family. It's not for tradition. It's not checking a box and saying we want to worship. It's because we come to worship the Supreme Christ. And so we sing songs about His greatness. Holy, holy, holy. The cherubim and the seraphim, they fall down before you. We sing how great is our God. We sing, we'll sing after this. We'll sing how great thou art. Why? Because He is worthy of it as the supreme Lord. We hear the word of God that talks about His greatness. And we leave here with a fresh sense yet again, week after week, that He is God And we are not. And I need this reminder every week. I need the reminder that Brandon is not the center of the universe, but that Jesus is the center of the universe. I need the reminder that life is not about me, 
This church is not about me. I need the reminder that the church is about Christ. And the church and everything in life is about Him. He is great and we are not. He is perfect and we are not. He is sovereign and we are not. He is holy and we are not. He is supreme and we are not. He is the supreme creator. And by Him all things hold together. But not only is He supreme in creation, but He is supreme in redemption. Look at verse 18 with me. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. And so the language continues for Paul. He cannot stop extolling the preeminence, the supremacy of Christ. He says that Jesus is the head of the church. Christ is supreme over the church. He's the head. That body metaphor for the church is used elsewhere by Paul. And here calling Jesus the head. He's very simply, without your head, you're dead, right? Without the head of the church, the church is dead. But thanks be to God that He is eternal, Jesus is eternal, and He will never die. Thus the church will remain for all time, worshiping the Lord God in heaven. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The eternal Christ is the eternal head of the church. But notice also the, the use of the word firstborn again in verse 18. And this is again why the word firstborn cannot indicate a creation and when Jesus was supposedly created because the word firstborn is used again here in verse 18 being the firstborn from the dead. But we know that Jesus was not the first person to be born from the dead. The idea, again, is preeminence. We look in the Old Testament and you can see the fact that people were resurrected from the dead. So again, Jesus was not the first one. He is the preeminent one. His resurrection is the resurrection that matters. It is the preeminent, supreme resurrection that has to do with all of us. And being raised with him in his resurrection gives life. So it's all about Jesus because Jesus was like no human to ever live. He was not only man, but he was also God. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Read it again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is what theologians like to call the hypostatic union. That Jesus was fully God and fully man. Not 50% man and 50% God. Fully God and fully man. Let your eyes go down to Colossians 2 and verse 9. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For in Him, again Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is God. The testimony of the entire Bible is unbelievably clear on this. And we Christians have to have an, a, a white-knuckled grip on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. You need to be able to engage people on this fact. So if you're taking notes, let me give you some references to jot down for later as I read them quickly. Keep in mind, this is a very short sampling. There are many other verses at play that I can give you later. But here are six of them. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word being Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 1. 
Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, who spent three years with Jesus, what does he call Jesus? Not only Savior, but God. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Old Testament, Christmas text. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, But of the Son, who is the Son? Jesus. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O Son, God, Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. John chapter 20, verse 28 and 29. Again, Thomas, one of the followers of Jesus, who spent time with Jesus, who knew Jesus, he sees the resurrected Lord and he says, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. So the scriptures, and there are more, they are not ambiguous as to who Jesus is. Jesus is exactly what doubting Thomas called him. He is Lord, he is supreme, and he is God. And it's imperative to have a handle on this great truth. Look again at verse 19 going into 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconciliation in our lives, it exists because sin exists. When a relationship is disrupted by anger or an argument or something, what needs to take place between the two parties is reconciliation. And although everything we see, even ourselves, have been created by and for Christ, there has been a separation in the relationship, hasn't there? That our sin separates us from God, and slowly but surely, God is making us more like Him. As time continues, more and more enemies are swept under the feet of Christ. But one day, everything will be truly reconciled. We will be finally and fully with the Lord. Evil and the doers of evil will be vanquished. And so we see this reconciliation. All things reconciled. And what Jesus has done on the cross, it it fits with what we see through the New Testament, that the work of Christ on the cross has happened and it saves us and it has an immediate and permanent effect on us, but there is a continued, lasting, even a future aspect to the, to the cross as well. That all things, because of the cross, will be fully and finally dealt with and we will forever be perfectly and beautifully reconciled forever and ever. In closing, let me ask you to turn to another text. Let me ask you to turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Everybody likes the book of Revelation because of its mystery. I like the book of Revelation because of its clarity. Specifically in regard to what it says about Jesus. And in Revelation 19, we catch an incredible glimpse of Jesus that carries on the truth of His absolute supremacy. Revelation 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, you're going to see an unbelievable display of the sovereignty of Jesus someday. That Jesus is going to get on a white horse. It's a, it's a white horse. It's a, a white horse as a sign of victory that has already been won. That little donkey colt that he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday showing the victory that he had. This ride on the white horse is going to be that times a million. He's going to come on that horse and make war. His eyes like flames of fire. He's going to be wearing many crowns, many diadems, it says, symbolizing his absolute authority and preeminence over all kingdom. He'll come with the armies of heaven and he'll wipe out the wicked. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And what is going to be written on his thigh and on his robe is something that cannot be said of anyone else. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's absolute supremacy. One day he will exude this power and might. But don't be mistaken that although it's going to be future and it's going to happen in the future, don't be mistaken, he already has this power. And he will wield it at the appointed time. I want to wrap all of the supremacy of Christ in one concept as we think about it in relation to us and the practicality of it. What does the supremacy of Christ mean for you? It should mean worship. After all, like I mentioned earlier, is this not a hymn? This is a song for the church to sing. The supremacy of Jesus gives us cause to sing. If it's true that Christ is supreme over all things, as far as the visible and invisible things go, as far as creation goes, then we should spread the word that He is supreme over all things. And as we spread this news that Jesus is supreme, and we spread it through our little town, and we spread it through central Maine, they will come to align themselves with this truth that Jesus is supreme over all, that He is the Lord, and if He is supreme, then they must live their lives in light of that fact and worship Him as the supreme God over all. Let's pray. Lord, we're privileged to call you ours, even though we deserve to be vanquished and set aside and put away as worthless beings in light of how supreme you truly are. Lord, I thank you for this text. shows us the importance of Christ. And really, just one of the most important statements 
on Christ, being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one, the one who by whom all things were created, being the firstborn from the dead, so that you might be preeminent in everything. We're thankful that you've called us to worship you. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to live our lives in this context, that we're not central to the universe, but you are. And you have ultimate rule over everything, therefore having ultimate rule over us. And as our head of the church, we submit to what you have to say. And so in regard to what your word tells your church this morning, Lord, help us to commit ourselves to pursuing it. Praise Christ's name. Amen.